Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about one of Bach's most important contemporaries, George Friedrich Handel. Handel was born in Halle on February 23, 1685, less than a month earlier than Johann Sebastian. Although the career paths of the two were to take them in very different directions, and there are relatively few areas in which direct comparisons between them can be made, there is no question that Bach admired Handel's music, having made at least one journey to Halle to meet the more worldly and widely praised composer. And Bach was certainly aware of at least some of Handel's music for keyboard. I mentioned in an earlier episode that Bach may have used Handel's Chacon with 62 variations as a possible inspiration for his Goldberg variations. There were some similarities in the early musical experiences of both composers. Both were organists, known for their improvisatory abilities, and both went on to play violin, although it's doubtful that Handel's level of proficiency on that instrument ever approached Bach's. Both composed from an early age, in Bach's case, because the whole tradition into which he was born encouraged him to do so, while in Handel's case, his early efforts seem to have been discouraged by his barber-surgeon father, who preferred that his son study the law, a familiar story for musicians. His father eventually relented, and Handel began studying with Zakau, the principal organist in Halle. Handel's career as a professional organist then began in Halle when he was 17, but a year later he left for opera-loving Hamburg, where he played violin and harpsichord in the opera orchestra there. Reinhard Kaiser was the major figure in the German opera world at that point, and when he left the city unexpectedly, Handel was given a chance to compose, in 1704, the opera now known as Elmira, which understandably showed Kaiser's influence in a number of ways, but was quite well received. His next opera was less successful, and when Kaiser returned, Handel's opportunities seemed to have dried up. Since Italian-style operas were fashionable in Hamburg at the time, Handel decided to travel to Italy in 1706, there better to absorb the nuances of the style more fully. Arriving in Rome, Handel availed himself of the opportunity to write various sacred choral works and a number of cantatas set to Italian texts. Opera being forbidden in Rome by papal mandate, Handel composed his first Italian opera in Florence in 1707, the opera now known as Rodrigo, which showed his increased facility in the Italian style. Handel appears to have returned to Hamburg to assist with the production of two operas he had previously worked on, but was soon back in Italy where his opera Agrippina was introduced in Venice in 1709 to substantial acclaim. Since Venice in carnival season was widely populated by an international audience, Handel won friends for his music among a wide variety of influential nobles, very likely including Prince Ernst Georg of Hanover, brother of the future King George I of England, and the Duke of Manchester, the English ambassador. In 1710, Handel then traveled north and soon was appointed Kapellmeister to the electoral court at Hanover, where the electoral prince and princess, the future King George II of England and Queen Caroline was reported to be quite impressed by his harpsichord playing. A few months later, Handel traveled briefly to Dusseldorf and then on to England. Italian-style opera had since 1705 began to secure favor in England, with an increasing enthusiasm developing for Italian opera singers, especially Castrati. But most works had been makeshift pastiches, sometimes sung in English. Arriving in London in 1710, Handel became the first to compose a completely new Italian-style opera for this audience, working with an all-Italian cast of singers. The opera was Rinaldo, based on a libretto by Giacomo Rossi, which opened at the Queen's Haymarket Theatre. The opera was a great success, but Handel felt obligated to return to Hanover, where he continued to compose smaller vocal works. Toward the end of 1712, he received permission to make a second trip to England, where he lived for the next three or four years, and where he composed three or four additional operas, none of them quite as successful as Ronaldo. But Handel continued to be active as a composer of choral music, as he had been in Italy. 
His most notable works were composed for the church, such as the Te Deum and Jubilate in 1713, to celebrate the successful resolution of the War of Spanish Succession, and various other courtly celebrations. He also composed in this period a setting of Bracchus' Passion Oratorio, providing one of the few direct comparisons with Bach's works. Handel also composed instrumental works in this period, including the famous Water Music Orchestral Suite in 1717 to accompany King George's trip on the River Thames, also in 1717, briefly under the employ of the later Duke of Chandos, Handel composed a number of anthems, later known as the Chandos Anthems, and a larger Te Deum. He also composed two dramatic works, a mask and the oratorio Esther, which reappropriated some of the music from the Bracchus Passion, a practice which was to become increasingly common for Handel. He then undertook the monumental project of establishing, along with others, the Royal Academy of Music, supported by the king and founded as a joint stock company, which was designed to establish and promote Italian opera in London on a regular basis. Handel was appointed music director and assisted in bringing in Italian singers for the company. In the years that followed, Handel composed for this group a number of his best and most successful operas, including Ottone, Tamerlano, and Julius Caesar in Egypt, which we'll take a closer look at a little later. But over the years, the popularity and economic feasibility of Italian opera for the English public proved to have ebbs and flows. In 1728, the Royal Academy collapsed, but Handel had by this point increasingly diversified his compositional activities, composing four anthems for the coronation of George II, having been appointed a composer to the Royal Chapel in 1723. Handel nevertheless maintained his interest in opera, putting together another company and beginning a new five-year series in 1729, but eventually Handel's company found itself competing against another, the opera of the nobility, and economic success became more precarious than ever. For the rest of the 1730s, Handel moved between Italian opera and English forms, mostly oratorios and odes. After the great success of the Messiah in 1741-1742, Handel abandoned opera completely. Most of his oratorios were based on Old Testament stories, including Jephthah, his final new work composed in 1752, which we'll take a look at later. But Handel also employed texts from classical mythology as well. All were performed in concert form and in English with primarily English singers, allowing for a reduction in the formidable expenses associated with the production of Italian opera. But we're going to begin not with an oratorio, but with the second of Handel's so-called Chandos anthems, In the Lord Put I My Trust, based on Psalms 11, 12, and 13, in the version by Nahum Tate and Nicholas Brady, composed in 1717. This and other major choral works, which Handel composed based on English texts, are often referred to as something of a training ground for the composition of his oratorios. And though Handel was never a very comfortable English speaker, his daily discourse seems to have been a synthesis of English, Italian, German, and even French, his settings of most of these texts seem for the most part secure, even robust, although some commentators have referenced awkward placements of accents from time to time. These works were composed with somewhat limited resources, the orchestra consisting of oboes, first and second violins, continual bass and organ, and the voices restricted to sopranos, tenors, and basses. The work begins, as most of this type do, with a French overture, this one in D minor. Handel was particularly skilled at this genre, and this is an excellent example, projecting pomp, dignity, and solemnity, but also with a certain amount of pathos. But since we're focusing on Handel's vocal and choral music today, we're going to move on right away to the second movement. The second movement, an allegro moderato in 3-4, again D minor, opens with the soprano singing, In the Lord put I my trust, how say you then to my soul, she shall flee as a bird unto the hill, unto the hill she shall flee. The melody unfolds slowly with three repeated notes on the fifth scale degree and a descending scale line in the first phrase. This is followed by a somber second phrase built on sequential repetitions of its first measure. 
Soon, the melody begins to fly, albeit modestly, in melismatic eighth notes. After ten measures, the tenors join in with a slightly ornamented version of the same melody, while the soprano or cantus line continues on with an elegant countermelody. Gradually, the texture thickens. The basses enter back on the dominant, and violins and oboes make their presence felt, often doubling the vocal lines. Let's hear that much. homophonic sections intervene periodically before the original theme returns and is again spun out. As we proceed, sequences build to a series of climaxes with the final measures slowing down to adagio for a cadence on the dominant. The third movement in F major marked on Dante and set for solo tenor, oboe, and strings employs the text, God is a constant sure defense against oppressing rage as troubles rise his needful aids in our behalf engage. The oboe and second violin open by previewing the vocal melody to come, with accompanying motives from the first violin, which shows flashes of imitation, particularly concentrating on one especially strong, undulating motive appearing in the third bar of the melody. We're going to hear an excerpt beginning with the entrance of the tenor solo, which starts with a variant of the opening instrumental melody before breaking into a long melisma on the word rage. The accompaniment is modest, continuo and a solo oboe, which echoes some of the tenor's opening motives before lapsing into a series of effective suspensions. God is a constant defense against oppressing rage, against oppressing rage, against oppressing rage. The melody, as you heard, is by no means a complex one, nor are the harmonies which support it particularly distinctive. And yet it is quite effective, building a rhythmic momentum as it proceeds and held together with strategically placed repeating motives. After a brief instrumental ritonello, the tenor re-enters, now up a fifth, with another variant of the melody, and with the oboe and violins sharing a more active but still suspension-filled countermelody. Soon, the second half of the text is introduced, as troubles rise. New melodic ideas are also introduced, the line initially rising along with the troubles, and the key tilts toward G minor and later E flat. The continual bass line, which has been relatively busy for the entire movement, now takes on, from time to time, a particularly active role in keeping the rhythmic momentum strong, while oboe and first violin also make active contributions as well, taking center stage for the final four bars that bring the movement to a close. Here's an excerpt beginning with the second section of the text. Needful, it's needful, it's 
movement three in B-flat major in 3-4 time and employing sopranos, tenors, and basses along with the orchestra is based on the text, Behold, the wicked bend their bows and ready fix their darts, lurking in ambush to destroy the man of upright heart. It begins in a rousing homophonic style, but the voices soon divide at the line, the wicked bend their bows and ready fix their darts, tossing a short, offbeat motive of eighth notes back and forth, sometimes doubled in thirds. A new idea is added at the line, lurking in ambush, one which marches along steadily in quarter notes in the basses and tenors, but which inspires the sopranos to a long melismatic flow of eighth notes. The melismatic flow is eventually handed to the basses, and soon we come to a passage that sounds as if it may be the beginning of an imitative section, with a new triadic motive introduced by the basses, but as so often the case, Handel is more interested in varying the texture here than in establishing a complexly imitative flow, and the idea quickly fades. As you heard at the end of my example, the original homophonic opening is then brought back, along with the opening line of Behold, Behold, and developed for a little while. Later motives also make a return, but some new ideas are introduced as well, including some broader phrases and more sustained tones in the sopranos. The final choral statement on The Man with the Upright Heart returns to the opening homophonic style now embellished with mild syncopations. The next movement, in G minor, common time, and marked largo, is for solo tenor and violins in unison, which introduce the central thematic material and which keep up a lively interplay with the tenor, notwithstanding the generally lamenting tone of the movement. The text is, But God who hears the suffering power and their oppression knows will soon arise and give them rest, in spite of all their foes. Although some new ideas are introduced along the way, the motive of the falling half-step, a traditional expression of lament, dominates in the vocal line and even more so in the violin accompaniment. Oh, 
When the text refers to God's rising and giving rest to those oppressed, a more vigorous tone and a new phrase with more aggressive dotted rhythms are temporarily adopted, as you heard in my excerpt. But the lamenting minor seconds soon return and continue on to the end of the movement. The next movement is a much more robust one, in D major and marked allegro. The opening text is Snares, Fire, and Brimstone on Our Heads, shall in our tempest shower. Like the last movement, it also begins homophonically, all three voices in a theme dominated by rhythmically charged eighth notes with bustling sixteenth note scale runs above and below. After six bars, the voices fragment, tossing mostly triadic motives back and forth. The two styles alternate as the key breaks away from D, first toward A, the dominant, and then to G major. When reaching the text, this dreadful mixture, his revenge into this cup shall pour, Handel begins to flirt with fugal imitation, beginning a new theme on the dominant, which starts with three repeated eighth notes, heard first in the sopranos, and answered only half a measure later, down a fifth in the tenors. This sort of fugal subject isn't very long, and the second part of it is largely a sequential repetition of the first. The sopranos repeat the subject on the tonic and are then echoed by the basses. The imitation, such as it is, is short-lived, but fragments of it persist until the original text, Snares, Fire, and Brimstone, returns, and with it the powerful homophonic chords from the opening of the movement. Here's the second half of the movement, starting with the introduction of the new text. The next movement in 3-4, marked Largo and featuring the tenor soloist, returns to D minor. The text is, The righteous Lord will righteous deeds with signal favor grace, and to the upright man disclose the brightness of his face. The relatively unadorned and pensive melody unfolds slowly, its most distinctive feature probably the ascending chromatic surges which accompany references to the upright man. Oboe and violin provide equally restrained and effective counter-melodies, with the oboe's long-held suspensions particularly effective. Here's a little of the beginning. Lord, 
The final movement, Allegro, common time in D minor, employs the text, Then shall my song, with praise inspired, to thee, my God, ascend, who to thy servants in distress such bounty didst extend. While the use of imitation in the previous choral movements seemed mostly designed to enliven the texture, Handel is more committed to the technique here, perhaps to increase the gravitas of the final movement for a serious occasion. The instruments initially double the voices in motet fashion, another gesture toward solemnity. The tenors present the first three-measure subject, which ascends the first three notes of the D minor scale, before dropping down first a half-step and then a fifth. The sopranos answer immediately up a fifth, and then, after an intervening measure, the basses come in down an octave. Here are the opening measures. The imitation complete, the music cadences on the dominant, and we hear a short episode characterized by the voices exchanging motives from the subject in a rising sequence. Soon, we've modulated to F major, and the subject is presented in the basses in that key, but we cadence quickly before either of the other voices can follow suit. There we encounter, along with the new text, Who to thy servants in distress such bounty didst extend, a new subject in the sopranos, as we begin to be pulled back into D minor. This time the initial trajectory is descending, although the subject ultimately ends up where it started. The tenors respond with a more ornamented version of the new subject, the tale of which is echoed back and forth by the sopranos and tenors. The basses then enter, but against this the tenors quote a variant of the first subject, along with its initial text. For several measures after that, we experience both subjects, sometimes simultaneously in different voices along with dual texts. One is tempted to characterize all this as Bachian complexity and accomplished with, for the most part, only three independent voices. Seven measures before the end, the second subject is presented one more time by the tenors, and for the final measures, the tempo slows to grave for an appropriately dignified final cadence in D minor. It's an impressive anthem covering a wide range of styles, all appropriate to the sort of dignified occasion for which it was composed. Next, we turn briefly to one of his four coronation anthems, Zadok the Priest from 1727, 
The short text for the first movement is Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. It begins with an orchestral introduction on Dante Maestoso, starting quietly with a dynamic marking of piano, but almost inevitably increases in volume as it runs its 22-measure course. It's dominated by a series of 16th note ascending arpeggios which move through a series of closely related tonal areas majestically from the tonic of D major, incorporating some sevenths and dissonant suspension chords and a little surprising chromatic movement along the way. Here's the beginning of that orchestral introduction. The seven-part chorus, all but the tenors doubled, then enters powerfully with a series of homophonic chords over a similar progression. This leads directly to the second movement, free-four meter and marked allegro, scored for sopranos, first and second altos, tenors, and basses. Again, the texture is mostly homophonic, with a fair amount of repetition, but enlivened considerably by the dotted note figures of regal-sounding trumpets and timpani. The text is, and all the people rejoiced and said, here's the beginning. The third and final movement continues with God save the king, long live the king, may the king live forever. Amen, amen, alleluia, amen. Here's an excerpt. You'll notice, of course, that this movement makes ample use of the sort of short, rhythmically distinctive, homophonic motives that are a key element of Handel's choral style. You'll also notice other aspects of his style which are highly reminiscent of those which Handel uses elsewhere, for example, in the extraordinarily popular Messiah. This is true in part because certain stylistic characteristics were considered appropriate for certain celebratory works and there were only so many options of how to deploy them. It's also true 
that Handel wanted to sound like Handel, to use stylistic elements associated with his most successful works, a stamp of authenticity, so to speak. And it is again also true that Handel was an inveterate self-borrower, and on a number of occasions, a borrower from other composers as well. We'll turn now from a sampling of Handel's choral works in English to a few excerpts from one of his greatest operas, Julius Caesar in Egypt, composed in 1724, the libretto in Italian by Nicola Francesco Hema. We're only going to look at the first few scenes of the opera, but in those first few scenes, Handel provides one short chorus and a series of arias in which he does an excellent job of providing distinctive musical characterizations of the main figures in the plot. First, here is an extremely brief excerpt from the French overture that begins the work. The overture's officious sound sets well the background for Caesar's triumphal entry as he crosses the bridge over the Nile to proclaim his victory, saluted by a welcoming chorus. In English translation, Long live our Alcides, let the Nile rejoice today, all shores are smiling on him, all torments have vanished. Caesar then enters. The role was designed to be sung by a castrato, and over the years it's been tackled by baritones, a couple of octaves lower than written, and male and female altos, the last of which you're going to hear in my examples today. Caesar sings, Let the land of Egypt offer the palm to the victor, in an aria that strides confidently through its noble theme, starting on the tonic note and springing up immediately to the fifth and upper octave before introducing a faster-moving rhythmic motive that is repeated with variation several times in the course of the aria. We'll pick it up at the end of the opening ritonello, which basically serves to introduce the vocal melody right before Caesar enters. It's a fairly short aria, but wastes little time in introducing some hints of the virtuoso melismas to come. Of course, castrati were renowned for their vocal power in combination with great flexibility, and Handel naturally wanted to offer a taste of that early in the opera. In the brief recitative that follows, Caesar addresses Curio, saying, Curio, Caesar came, saw, and conquered. Already defeated, Pompey appeals in vain to the king of Egypt to reinforce his army. Curio then states that Caesar has come just in time to thwart his plans. Meanwhile, Cornelia, the wife of his enemy, Pompey, has arrived with her son Sextus, also sung by a woman, a long-standing tradition for the role of a young man not having yet reached maturity. Cornelia and her son plead with Caesar, already clearly victorious, to lay down his weapons and fight no more. Caesar agrees, but now Achilles enters, a representative of Ptolemy, the Egyptian king. He congratulates Caesar on his victory and offers him Ptolemy's palace as a resting place after his exertions, which Caesar gladly accepts. But then Achilles presents Caesar with a ghastly gift, the severed head of Pompey. It's an attempt to curry favor with Caesar, 
but it goes desperately wrong. Cornelia understandably faints at the sight of this, and Sextus expresses his despair. But Caesar is furious. He tells Achilles that he will come to the palace today, and when he does, he will tell Ptolemy, I will speak of how pitiless you are. Leave my sight. You are utterly cruel. The heart of a king is not without pity. It's a classic vengeance aria, beginning with a dramatic descending scale and brimming with highly energetic, leaping figuration patterns in the orchestral accompaniment. And of course, there are even more extended virtuoso melismas. This aria is in da capo form, which means there's a contrasting middle section. But in this particular da capo aria, the middle section, although it introduces a new text, The Heart of a King is Not Without Pity, and some new melodic ideas, it doesn't really present a strong contrast in mood or tone. <laughs> In the recitative that follows, and by the way, I'm leaving out some subplots here so this doesn't get too complicated, Cornelia has regained consciousness and, in despair, attempts to take her own life, but is prevented from doing so by Curio. Somewhat peculiarly, Curio then takes this opportunity to declare his undying love for Cornelia, but she wants no part of this, and Sextus is indignant so Curio decides to beat a hasty retreat. But now, with things at their lowest ebb, Cornelia sings a wonderful lamenting aria in D major, full of dignity, but also without hope. I am deprived of all comfort, and even the hope of death is denied me. It's another da capo aria with a contrasting middle section that is not terribly contrasting in mood. My heart bursting with sorrow, is already weary of suffering, and yet death has been withheld from me.
Whereas the first part of the aria stayed close to the twin poles of tonic and dominant, the middle section is more varied tonally, moving toward E minor quickly and employing some more unusual chromatic chords and lush dissonances, a suggestion of the heightened emotional context. Here is the middle section. Cornelia exits after her main aria, which is standard procedure in this sort of opera seria, and Sextus seizes our attention, first with a recitative urging himself to action. Vain are your lamentations, he tells himself. Now is the time, O Sextus, to avenge your father. Let the slothful soul, wounded by a tyrant, awaken to take revenge. He then launches into his version of a revenge aria which begins, Awaken in my heart fury of an insulted soul to take bitter revenge on a traitor. Here is the recitative and the first part of the aria. The bold opening orchestral statement delivered in unisons and octaves, the furiously agitated repeated figuration patterns, the frequent octave drops in the vocal line suggesting resolve and determination, all these things add up to a perfectly proper revenge aria, even though it seems clear that Sextus may not actually be capable of carrying out his threat at this time. In the middle section of the aria, far more contrasting in tone than in the others we've heard so far, he sings, 
the shade of my father, meaning the ghost or spirit, rushes to my defense, and it says, son, have no mercy. Sextus is getting quite a bit more introspective here, seeking inspiration from his sentimental feelings for his deceased father. Here we move from C minor, common time, fast tempo, and the driving rhythms of the first section to E flat major and the lilting, almost pastoral sounding, dotted 3 8 rhythms of the middle section. Although in the end, the music cadences on the original dominant to prepare us for a return to the first section and a reestablishment of the young man's resolve. Now, in the fifth scene of the first act, we encounter a new character. And she's a character like no other, Cleopatra, a soprano vamp who is brimming with confidence and quite certain that it's just a matter of time before she rules alone without her brother Ptolemy's interference. In a duo recitative, first with her servant Nerenus and then later Ptolemy, whose role here is sung by a countertenor, Cleopatra explains her plans to beguile Caesar and become the queen. In the aria that follows, she focuses on berating her brother. When he tells her to go away and return, madwoman, to your female tasks, she mocks him by replying, Do not despair, who knows? If you cannot gain the kingdom, perhaps you will fare better in love. In admiring a beauty, you will discover how to console your heart. Here's a bit of the recitative leading into Cleopatra's aria.
this coquettish aria in E major with its short, clipped-off phrases could only have been sung by the brazen Cleopatra. And Cleopatra gets her chance to show off a little virtuoso technique as well. But here, the impression received is not of the character's focused determination, but rather her unconcerned flippancy. We are only in the first act at this point, and there are a number of convoluted twists and turns to come. And while some characters find themselves in greatly transformed circumstances, others find opportunities to repeat their basic viewpoints and intentions again and again. I'm not going to even attempt to unravel all of these complexities, but for those listeners rooting for Sextus to finally seize the day and have his revenge, after going on at such great length how it is his duty to do so, he does finally accomplish the task. On to our final examples, taken from the oratorio Jephtha, which I've already mentioned. Handel's turn toward focusing on oratorios came about for several reasons, but the primary one may have been economic. Here was a field in which there was little competition in the English market, unlike the production of Italian opera. And if London's wealthiest were showing signs of exhausting their interest in that relatively exotic form, exotic to English taste, at any rate, the middle class seemed perfectly willing to embrace oratorios. It was, after all, a respectable, even pious entertainment. No strange castrati to countenance, or a foreign language to wade through. Of course, this was perhaps an even greater advantage to Handel himself, since, if half of the stories are to be believed, he had more than his share of run-ins with temperamental divas. But as I mentioned earlier, many of the singers for the oratorios Handel produced were English singers, cheaper to engage, and generally a bit easier to work with and the lack of staging also made his life quite a bit easier as well. Besides, Handel's earlier attempts at oratorio had gone over quite well with the English public, so when the Messiah became a huge success, it was only logical that Handel would follow up with more oratorios. We're only going to look at just a little bit of Jephthah, however. The libretto by Thomas Morell is based on the story of Jephthah told somewhat sketchily in chapter 11 of the Old Testament book of Judges. Needless to say, the librettist filled in, or more realistically, invented some of the details, including the ladies who served as the love interest in the story. The oratorio begins as usual with a somber and ceremonial-sounding French overture. We are then introduced to Zebul, who bemoans the fact that the Israelites have suffered for so long under the rule of the Ammonites, but believes that his brother Jephthah may be the leader needed to cast off their bonds. After an opening recitative setting the scene, Zabel sings the aria which begins, Pour forth no more unheeded prayers to idols deaf and vain. So, with a recitative between Zebul and Jephthah, an agreement is made. Jephthah will lead his people into battle with the Ammonites, on the condition that, if he leads the way in battle, he must do so in peace as well. But Jephthah comes, kind man, assist of me. For Jephthah, with an eye of pity, Look, I repent, and brethren in distress, forgetful of thy wrongs, redress thy sire, thy friend. 
As the newly elevated leader, Jephthah is not lacking in confidence. As he demonstrates in his aria, goodness will make me great. The first part of the text is, virtue my soul shall still embrace, goodness shall make me great. The aria is a bold one, with militant-sounding dotted rhythms and elaborate triplet-based melismas. The middle section is particularly wonderful, where Jephthah sings, who builds upon this steady bass, dreads no event of fate. When the second line is repeated, who builds upon this steady bass, the continual bass line becomes steady, that is, it is sustained through several measures as a pedal point. Eventually it changes notes when the harmonic situation demands it, but it then becomes steady again, although not for as long this time. This steady bass idea continues until a few measures before the final cadential chords of the section, which bring us back to the first part of the aria. This is, of course, an exceedingly clever example of word painting. We've noted a number of examples of word painting in various Bach episodes, and there are, of course, hundreds and hundreds more examples to be found. And Handel is often thought of as being less literal than Bach less concerned with the musical depiction or representation of specific words or phrases. But this is an excellent example of Handel seizing upon one specific word and painting it in an extraordinarily effective way. Who builds upon this steady base dreads no event of fate? Who builds upon this steady We're going to leave Jephthah now, although, of course, the real drama lies ahead. If granted victory, Jephthah declares he will sacrifice the life of the first person he meets when he returns home. That person, it turns out, is his daughter. The librettist breaks somewhat with the Book of Judges in terms of the outcome of this situation, although it's hard to see his solution to the dilemma as being a particularly happy ending. Nevertheless, we will bring this episode to a close. In our next, we'll survey Handel's instrumental music. 